Welcome to Here and Now with Janan Shahi. You are listening to the news from communities of Kingston on CFRC 101.9 FM. We bring you voices not likely to be heard anywhere but on your campus radio every week. In our latest episode, we reported the picket line of eight child care workers who were locked out from something special children's center. We have some good news on that front. After a long period of negotiations, QP the local 3625 workers and something special children's center have reached a tentative agreement. The dispute was over the sick leave bank and the employees fighting to keep their sick leave bank intact had been locked out since Friday, November the 1st. Ratification vote took place over the weekend and something special children's center opened yesterday on Monday. We do not know yet the details of the deal and we will keep updating you once the detailed information is shared. We started with some good news, but the coming news is not as pleasant. 40 workers at the Kingston plant of Western Food are being laid off. The Kingston plant is owned by George Weston Limited, which controls Loblaws and Shoppers Drug Mart. Western Foods, in a statement, confirmed their decision to eliminate one of the two production lines. The workers at the plant were unionized under the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco Workers and Grain Millers International Union. Braden Bobcock, the local union president, is one of the laid-off workers. Western Food has about 200,000 workers at national level, and with its latest reduction plan, 1% of its workforce is affected. The decision to eliminate the production line and layoff workers came as a shock to the workers. Another sector that we have been observing disputes since the court government introduced the plan for the cuts is education. Ontario high school teachers, education uh, workers vote in favor of a strike, while the education minister Stephen Lecke calls on a major teachers union to enter into mediation on Monday. So Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, OSTF, voted 95.5% in favor of strike action. Similarly, education workers are in favor of job action with 92%. And in addition, an overwhelming majority of teachers in Ontario's Catholic school system announced that 97.1% of them are in favor of a strike action if a deal with the Conservative government cannot be reached. Here and now, your community news program reached OSSTF to discuss the impact of the cuts on education in greater detail. We hosted an OSTF member in the studio. We have today in the studio Andrea Loken, the president of Teacher Bargaining Unit OSSTF Limestone District 27. Uh, welcome, Andrea. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Um, we we are going to discuss with Andrea uh, the 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 plan that Doug Ford government has for the uh, public education system. Uh, since uh, she is uh, part of the union at secondary level, we might focus more on that. Uh, but before we go into the details, uh, Andrea, we um, can we talk about you know like when did Doug Ford. Uh, uh, design this, you know, start this plan, and uh, uh, can you give us an overview of this plan? You know, what 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 effects uh, will it have on public education once it is implemented, or has uh, have already some of the parts have already been implemented? 
Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. they have uh, started to be implemented. So I'm not sure when the plan started uh, because when Doug Ford came in, it was quite quiet for education, but we knew that it was coming. Education mm -hmm. is a high expense, um, mm -hmm. a provincial expense along with health care. And so we knew that we would be a target eventually. And sure enough, in March of 20 of this year, he, uh, Doug Ford announced some really disturbing um, funding changes for education. And so the major thing I think that is having the biggest impact is a funding change from a staffing ratio of 22 to 1, that's 22 students to one teacher, to 28 to 1. And um, they presented this as a class size average. The class size averages were changing. However, it really isn't a class size average because it takes into account many teachers that have non-classroom sections, such as libraries, uh, student success, mm -hmm. uh, guidance. Um, so the problem is that, um, of course, it really isn't an average. And so from, from the public point of view, it didn't sound so terrible, I don't think, to hear have a class of 28. But it, it means all our classes would go up. And classes are right now uh, already bursting in many of our bigger schools and Limestone District School Board. So for us, when we're seeing classes now um, being capped, you know, at 32 would be um, some of our higher caps. Mm -hmm. Um, we have classes that are over that, and we would see classes balloon to possibly 40 students. So we would look at huge classes. We would also look at if the ratio, staffing ratio changed, we would lose about a quarter of our teachers. Mm -hmm. And um, that would mean that the curriculum or the courses that they teach would also be gone. There would be fewer teachers, so you can only teach so many classes. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of programming would have to go if all the teachers went. That's true, yeah. So uh, let's talk about this programming part, maybe. When we say a lot of programming would go, actually, what uh, services we are talking about in relation to the education that, 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 are, that is provided for uh, secondary or maybe even elementary school students? Right. right. So let me just say that I think that these changes were uh, designed by not by the Ministry of Education, but by coming out of the Ford government office. Um, and so I don't think they imagined the implications, mm -hmm. but when they say that they're going to not replace teachers um, for four years um, and let, you know, attrition take place um, until we meet this staffing ratio, as teachers retire or as they uh, leave to go to other jobs, or take leaves, um, those jobs would not be replaced. And what they don't understand is that sometimes teachers are very, very specialized and there aren't many to move around the system. So for example, if the technology teacher goes at a school, it's the woodworking teacher, let's say, um, there's no one to move into that position. If mm -hmm. the drama teacher goes, there's not necessarily someone to move mm -hmm. into that position. And so you lose whole programs. Um, as well with the staffing ratios that we have, we're able to run some smaller classes which are needed for our safety of students. So technology classes, for example, run at, uh, at about a max of 20 
around mm -hmm. that um, in many places and in our district. And so those classes become very expensive mm -hmm. in a model where the average has to be 28. Mm -hmm. And so, and again, I repeat, that's not really an average of class sizes. But, um, but when the staffing ratio goes to that, um, we're talking about those programs being um, really at risk of not being able to run simply because the staffing models don't allow you to run classes that small. I see. Um, so when this, uh, I think it was in March the 2019, I mean, this year when the cuts to education became an issue, I mean, as a PhD student here at Queen's, I was informed about the impact of that at that time, and the union uh, was also trying to educate the public, right, as well as its members uh, about possible impacts. Um, so uh, there was a, I think, fears education campaign, awareness raising campaign at the beginning. Uh, what about now? Because, you know, a lot has been said, leaflets have been produced, infographs, you know, like were on the websites. Uh, so and they were all informative, mm -hmm. I think, like both children or school kids and their parents secondary school students and their parents they somehow got informed about it right yeah so now where are we at this uh, stage of like contestation mm -hmm. right. well i think um we have to remember that Doug Ford never had a mandate to do this he didn't run on gutting public education um he they chose things to cut that directly impact students. And mm -hmm. so students and parents alike do not want these cuts. So we very much have the public on our side um, because That's these awesome. cuts are going to be devastating for our kids' education. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, myself, I have a daughter in grade nine and one in grade 12. And um, I'll, I'm glad that the one in grade 12 is almost through, but the grade nine I can't imagine what it's going to look like for her but we um we, it has united um interest groups so um parents are very much aligning with the educational workers and uh, I think everyone understands this as part of a of a bigger fight too um and have I answered that <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah that's true Okay, thanks, Andrea. So it was a good, very good interview. I think I hope our audience also learned about the cuts and their impact, and also maybe more insider information, right? Uh, all the relation between uh, the students, parents, uh, teachers, and their organizations, and uh, its uh, impact and the trends, maybe even globally, and how our picture falls into that mm -hmm. big picture. Mm -hmm. So thanks a lot. So and we also encourage, you know, uh, Kingstonian parents uh, to connect with the uh, struggle. So as you said, there are things to do. Uh, so as the movement, you know, like goes on, I hope uh, we win. But if uh, there are, you know, like more actions, events, we will keep airing it on CFRC Community News Program. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> okay. Hi. 
In addition to the union at secondary school level, teachers are also represented at elementary level by the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, ETFO. ETFO announced on Thursday that it's preparing teachers for the potential strike action to begin on November 26th. The Federation said 98% of their members voted for the job action, which they say targets administrative tasks and won't affect children. Members are being told not to complete term one report cards, not to participate in any professional learning from their school board or the ministry outside of school hours and not to do any, any online training run by the ministry. In this week's episode, we have two housing-related news. First of all, the City of Kingston unveiled its draft, which is titled Density by Design Planning Document. In the Issues and Options report that was released on November the 12th, climate emergency occupies a central place. The report is for the eight page long and it looks at planning and urban design, taking into consideration transportation, affordability, neighborhood character and development. The report includes comments from public feedback on issues including podium design, above grade parking, building setback and orientation, building access and how many floors buildings should be. In the report, the city is also outlining six policy areas that show differences between urban and suburban areas. The recognized heritage areas around the downtown, downtown is also part of the report. According to the report, Kingston has large site urbanizing areas, such as areas near the Cataraqui Center, the Kingston Center, and the north of Sir John A, to name but a few. The larger sites, according to the report, need individualized plans for development. Actually, we are witnessing one development project by J. Patra Enterprises on the side of the former Davis Tannery at the corner of River and Orchard Streets. A concept drawing of the proposed development by the company is now being brought to the City Council. It's going to happen tonight in the meeting. The plan contains four six-story buildings with 1,509 residential units and almost 5,000 square meters of commercial space. The developer has been working with the municipal planning staff since 2018. Although the development will provide a sizable number of units to Kingston, where vacancy rate is much lower than its counterparts, the affordability of the units in the project might not be low for the low-income groups in Kingston, who suffer the housing crisis in most acute terms. Another type of area is outlined as street-oriented urbanizing area in the report, which is along the Bath Road, King Street West, Princess and Division Street. The city of Kingston defined a mid-rise building as four to six stories and a tall building as 10 story or more. The proposal leaves room in the seven to nine stories range. Uh, and it doesn't propose a fixed amount height for the city as a whole, but does recommend that downtown areas be established separate from the rest of the city. Those who want to give feedback on the draft report can attend the discussion held by the planning department on November 21st, which is tomorrow, uh, in the memorial hall from 3 to 6.30 p.m.
After the federal elections put the issue of housing on the table as one of the most pressing issues in Canada and likewise in Kingston, we've been observing rising activism and increasing emphasis on the issue. Last week on November the 13th, there was a town hall hosted by NDP MPP Ian Arthur in Kingston Community Health Centre where the guests included MPP Sarah Singh, NDP's housing critic, and Mary Rita Holland, city councillor in Kingston, and also Doug Yearwood, an organizer with the Kataraqui Union of Tenants. We contacted Doug Yearwood and asked his reflections over the town hall. He said there are two major misconceptions when the housing crisis is framed. First, is the first misconception is related with the assumed benefits of the public-private partnership in solving the crisis. He argues that this practically means opening a site of crisis to a site of profit where people's basic right to housing turns into a commodity to be profited from by the uh, property developers. Second point that Gear would emphasize was about the enough supply or high vacancy rate in Kingston. He says we cannot be sure that this would bring down the rents or the prices. Overall, Cataraqui uh, Union of Tenants is campaigning for more social housing rather than public-private partnerships and more shelters for the homeless and a cap on rents rather than spending public money on private entrepreneurs. Being one of the most pro-working class and pro-housing right platforms during electoral campaign, Kingston NDP now engages in lively conversations with the community. Let's finish this part of the news hoping that the public debates amount to a concrete policies that address the housing issue in Kingston. For those who would like to attend the city council meetings where housing is one of the topics regularly addressed, the meetings happen first and third, third Tuesday of the month regularly. Tonight at 7 p.m. the meeting will happen in the council chamber in City Hall. From housing issues in Kingston and new, uh, new plans uh, for the student residents by the Queens, we are now shifting our attention to the homeless. According to the report, uh, published by the City of Kingston in 2018, the total number of people experiencing homelessness in Kingston is 213. 81 of those people live either unsheltered or in an emergency shelter. These numbers were reached with the help of a survey conducted across the province. The City of Kingston conducted an enumeration of homelessness in Kingston and County of Frontenac. Uh, there are three categories that the survey revealed. The first category is unsheltered, which includes people sleeping outdoors or uh, in makeshift shelters, tents, vehicles, cabins. The second category is emergency sheltered, including people who sleep in emergency shelters. And the last category is provisionally housed, referring to people who lack permanent housing or are sleeping in unsustainable situations such as couch surfing or living in transitional housing or in overcrowded housing. Some of the key findings from the survey are alarming. In both urban and rural counts, women comprise one half of the homeless population. In other communities in Canada, they make up only 25%. The second interesting finding is that the number of youth percentage among the homeless is on the rise. And lastly, 80% of all survey respondents state that ex uh, they experience a mental health issue. Lack of income, high rents, insufficient housing support are some of the reasons that perpetuate the problem. 
While finding shelter is one of the pressing issues for the homeless people in Kingston, access to food is another challenging aspect. There are a couple of charities and initiatives that try to provide hot meals for the homeless. One of them is Marta Stable, which serves very low price hot meals during the week. Another initiative is called Special Meals, a program that is run by St. Andrew's Church to provide hot meal for the homeless on Sundays. Today in the studio, we have the coordinator of the program, Bev Woodcock. In the studio today, we have uh, Bev Woodcock, the director of uh, Special Meals Program at St. Andrew's Church. Uh, hello, Bev. Welcome to our program. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, Bev, is, so, uh, I would like to ask a couple of questions about the program that you are directing, Special Meals. First of all, why do you call it Special Meals? What makes it special? Well, it's because uh, in my consideration of special, the people who we serve are special. Mm -hmm. They are people who are um, some down on their luck. They may be uh, street people. They may just be seniors who live alone and would like someone to um, interact with during the day. So uh, these meals were made especially for these people. So St. Andrews, um, quite a few years ago, when they began the program, decided to call it Special Meals. Now, mm -hmm. I don't know what their actual reason is, but my reasoning is that the people that we serve are special. Yeah, thank you for the answer. And uh, let's also inform our audience about the uh, frequency of the program, right? So how often do you run special meals and yeah, how they can access? Okay, mm -hmm. we serve a free hot meal every Sunday night. Mm -hmm. And um, we begin usually the second Sunday of September after the holiday and we finish for this year at the end of May. So we serve all winter long and into the spring every Sunday. Okay, thanks. And uh, how long have you been actively engaged with the program? This will be my seventh year. Right. Uh, uh, I think um, I met one of the volunteers of the program uh, that you are y running, yes, yeah, Michelle. Michelle. And uh, we were actually uh, together in a meeting about uh, tenants' concerns. And the subject was at that time the homeless people and their problems. And actually the special meals uh, became a topic of conversation at that point. And it occurred to me, uh, your experience in that program for seven years also gives us a history of the issue in Kingston, right? Mm -hmm. So people who benefit from that service who kind of share uh, the hot, uh, like the hot meals you're serving. So how, what do you observe that has happened over the last seven years? Because homelessness is usually argued to be an increasing, like a, a more pressing issue, right? At municipal level, even provincial level. So do, from your own experience, uh, how do you observe that seven years? Like how has profile changed? The numbers changed? Uh, can you share your experience with us? Yeah, yeah. Um, the numbers have changed over a period of seven years. Mm -hmm. um, because up 
until now, we were the only uh, venue that served on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. But now there is another place uh, over on Colburn Street Mm -hmm. that sometimes serves on Sunday as well. So Mm -hmm. that brings our numbers down a bit, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't bring down the numbers overall of, Mm -hmm. of the people who are on the street or do not have affordable housing mm-hmm. or whatever or do not have affordable shelters. So um, mm-hmm. in my experience over the last 70 years, I see our numbers climbing as as the winter weather moves mm-hmm. in and it gets colder, our numbers will go up. because people want to get in out of the cold Mm -hmm. um, and they want a place where they can uh, fellowship with other people um, during the Sunday afternoon. So um, we might start out at the beginning of the season with maybe only 20 or 30 people. Mm -hmm. And by the time we get into what we have now, the really cold weather, we might be serving sixty people a night uh, on oh. Sunday each Sunday night. So it's um, depends on the the weather type. Um, some people uh, who walk with walkers or canes or mm. or wheelchairs, whatever, cannot get proper access in the winter time. Mm-hmm. So they don't come out as often. But we do have wheelchair access to the program so um, we help as many as possible get into the building Mm -hmm. and I have um, also um, a couple of people who come in wheelchairs they can't get down the stairs into Mm -hmm. the basement of Gill Hall so I serve them just inside the door and they just Mm -hmm. sit in their wheelchair Okay, I see. Uh, that's important. Yeah, we also like uh, uh, inform yeah. our audience about the accessibility, yeah. and that's really uh, nice that you know, like you have that uh, access and also service. Um, maybe another question that uh, that I had uh, when I wanted to share with you uh, is about the responsibilities of other entities, institutions in Kingston, because you are doing a wonderful job. You are doing maybe your best to provide, you know, hot meals for people who are in the streets who who need them. Uh, But maybe this problem, uh, do you think, uh, should be addressed uh, more, uh, like with with more investment, you know, from maybe municipalities? Or what else can be done, you know, in addition to what you are doing? uh, From In addition to what we are doing, Mm -hmm. we would really... Michelle Mm. is uh, working with a group Mm. right now that are trying to find places for our clients to stay in Mm. during the night. Mm. As it is right now, um, we open at uh, quarter to five, Mm. and we serve until six, and then we clean up and whatever. So those people, when they're finished their meal, they have to go back out into the cold. Yeah. So um, we also have that works out of the same place that, that mm. as I do is the Kingston Street Mission. Mm. They come in at eight o'clock and set up so the people c- can come back in, mm. and they serve them hot soup and hot chocolate and snacks and things like that. But then 
they have to close at 1130. Hmm. So again, they have to go back out into the cold. So what really needs to happen for those who don't have shelter is um, that we could work together with some place to find a place where we could have enough volunteers to let them stay inside for the night mm. and and get off the street, get off the park benches and wherever else it mm. is that they're sleeping. And that is one of the things that Michelle mm. and the group that she is working with is bringing forward. That's true, yeah. Yeah, so, this Cataraqui Union of Tenants, they are uh, campaigning also for, yeah. for more social housing and shelters, right? Yeah. So they yeah. uh, attend town halls organized by the municipality. They are in a conversation with the uh, city's uh, task force on housing. So, uh, yes, right. they, and Michelle yes. is part of that. Yeah, yes, that's, that's right. Well, we're very blessed right now with what we've got out there uh, Mm-hmm. Winter's not over by a long shot yet, yes. so yes. it's going to get pretty cold be- before we go back into spring. So yes. we need to really mm-hmm. reach out to these people mm-hmm. that are on the street and let them know that we care. Yes. That's why we have this program, because we care. Yes. And uh, maybe it's a good opportunity now uh, to also remind the other responsible institutions in Kingston about their also uh, about a, their duties, right? So with these homeless people without shelter, like those have difficulty yes. reaching meals. I think we also uh, have uh, like political, social, you know, yeah. responsibility. Maybe it's also yeah. a good time to remind the relevant entities That's about right. that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much, Bev. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> You just heard weekly updates from Kingston communities. Stay tuned on CFRC 101.9 FM, your campus radio, to hear and know inclusive news from a diverse community. Thank you for listening to this podcast produced at CFRC 101.9 FM in Kingston, Ontario at Queen's University, situated on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. The CFRC Podcast Network at podcast.cfrc.ca is brought to you by the generous support of the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences.